Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. It's our happy privilege now to open the Word of God together, and I invite you to join me in this 22nd chapter of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 22, reading the first two verses. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him, and every one that was in distress, and every one that was in debt, and every one that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. David is one of the most vivid types in the Old Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Christ came from the line of David. He is David's Lord, and he is David's greater son. Son of David was one of the titles that we read in the New Testament of our Savior Jesus Christ. And the parallels between David and Jesus are numerous. David was the apple of God's eye, a man after God's own heart. Even so, John 1.18 tells us that Jesus dwelt in the bosom of the Father from all eternity past. A very tender and endearing term, a man after God's own heart. David was the shepherd king of Israel. So Jesus Christ is the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. He's the great shepherd that rose again from the dead, the chief shepherd who will come in his glory the second time. And he's also the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the only potentate, King Jesus. David is a man whom God chose. Now Saul was the people's choice, but David was chosen by God and anointed by God many years before his final ascent to the throne. Even so, Jesus Christ is the chosen of God. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. And before the foundation of the world, in the covenant, Jesus was anointed by the Father to finally ascend to the throne of the universe. David, as you no doubt remember, was Israel's champion who single-handedly won the victory over the giant that threatened the nation. And he won that victory on behalf of the entire people of God. That is, when one man felled the giant, the whole nation benefited from his victory. Even so, Jesus Christ is our champion, who felled the giant of sin single-handedly and represented the entire nation. Through him, you and I are more than conquerors. And David, after the victory, was persecuted by Saul, and he had to live the life of a fugitive for about 10 years. He's on the run. He was despised and rejected of men. Even so, our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John 1.11, came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was a very lonely figure in this world. He was despised and rejected of men. So there are many parallels between the two. And on this occasion in 1 Samuel chapter 22, David is living on the run. He's living the life of a fugitive. 
and he's at the zenith of his unpopularity. Now, public opinion is very fickle. One day, they're singing songs about you. David has slain his ten thousands. And the next day, the whole nation has been swayed by the propaganda that's coming from the leader of the nation into thinking that David is a threat to the well-being of the people of God. And David, again, is on the run, and his poll numbers have taken quite a hit. He's very unpopular. You know, as Saul shares the news that David is a traitor, that David is guilty of treason, the people begin to believe it. They swallow it without doing their own research. And David is having to live his life now at the height of his unpopularity. He's a lonely man. And I want you to notice in our text, the lonely figure now takes asylum in a large underground cavern called the Cave of Adullam. He's living in the rocks and the hills, and he's on the run. And again, this lasted for about 10 years. And on this occasion, David has finally found a cave, the Cave of Adullam, which, by the way, is a very spacious place. In fact, one writer has said that through the different passages inside of this underground cave, it was capable of hosting about 1,000 people. So David has found asylum in this large underground cave. And interestingly, he wrote two psalms during this experience, and I want to read portions of them to you. Psalm 57 is the first one. Notice the caption above Psalm 57. This is a psalm of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, can't you see him there? Here's the young man who had won the battle against the giant of the Philistines, who was celebrated, I mean, he was a household word just a few months previously. And now he's on the run, a lonely fugitive. And when he was in the cave, he turns to God in prayer. His place of protection becomes a closet of prayer. And I think this is a good lesson for us that when you and I are in distress, the best thing we can do is to go to the Lord in prayer. Listen to how he prays in Psalm 57.1. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me. Now, when he repeats himself, he's emphasizing his need for mercy. Interestingly, he doesn't cry out for justice or vengeance on his enemies, but he cries out for mercy upon himself. Lord, I, I need your compassion and mercy. For my soul trusteth in thee. I'm looking to you, Lord, to help me. For in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I know that this too shall pass, but until it passes, until these calamities be passed, Lord, I'm making my refuge in the shadow of thy wings. I love that image, don't you? The shadow of God's wings. God had spoken of his wings when Israel came out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 32. He says, I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Deuteronomy 32, it says that in his providence, God had led Israel like an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad its wings, and then bears her young upon her wings. So the Lord alone did lead him, the wings of God. And just as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 22, when he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but ye would not. That image speaks of God's protecting providence. And David says, Lord, I'm hiding not in a cave, I'm hiding under the shelter of your mighty wings. He says, I will cry unto God most high, Psalm 57, 2, unto God that performeth all things for me. Now, in whom is David trusting? Is he trusting in his strength and ability? Is he trusting in the sword of Goliath? Is he trusting in past victories? No, he's trusting in the God that performs all things for him. I'm trusting that you will work. I'm trusting in the God that performs all things for me. Listen to this. Here's David's confidence. God shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. Reproach means my reputation has taken a hit. Reproach means that my name is a byword. Yesterday it was celebrated. It was a song. Today it's a curse word. But he said, Lord, the man that is leading this campaign against me, I'm trusting in God to send from heaven and to save me, to deliver me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. He says, God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. I love the fact that he has confidence in God even while he's in this lonely, isolated cave. He says, my soul is among lions. And I lie even among them that are set on fire. Now, Daniel had not yet had his experience in the lion's den. Daniel came probably 400 years after David. But had David known what would happen then, he might have said, God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth because it's like I'm in the midst of a bunch of hungry lions. As Saul has marshaled the people that courted his favor on his side, and they are after David. They're looking for David, and David is having to run and to hide. He says, Lord, it's like the lions are everywhere I turn. Their teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. Notice he feels the pain of gossip and slander. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. He wants deliverance for the glory of God, not for his own benefit. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They've digged a pit before me. They're waiting to catch me. They're wanting to entrap me. They're seeking my destruction into their midst whereof they are fallen themselves. My heart is fixed, O God. Now this is his prayer in the cave. What kind of mindset was he in? While David is in the cave of Adullam, where we took our text this morning, he, he's lonely. He feels the pressure of the moment. He feels very isolated and alienated. But at the same time, his trust is in God. He's confident that God will help him. There's another psalm that he wrote in the cave, and it's the 142nd psalm. Would you listen to just a few passages from this psalm? The caption of this one says a prayer when he was in the cave. I love, again, the fact that he prayed. And here's his prayer. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make supplication. He said, I prayed audibly. And he mentions it twice. He repeats it because it was a place where he could voice his pain, his inward disquiet. He could vocalize his distress and he probably heard his voice echo off of the ceiling of that cave, that rocky cavern. 
He said, I cried aloud to God, Lord, help me. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. You say, well, God knows my trouble. Why do I have to detail it? Well, he wants us to admit just how abject is our case and how much we need his help. He says, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I have walked, they have privately laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld, and there was no man that would know me. Notice he's alone. He has no friends. This man is in the depths of the earth. He's on the run for his life. His reputation has been dragged through the mud. His safety hangs in jeopardy every moment. And David says, there's nobody to help me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. So I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge and my portion. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Listen to verse 7. Bring my soul out of prison. He feels to be in bondage. But he says, Lord, deliver me. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Now he's alone, but he has hope that the righteous will encircle him. He looks for reinforcements. He anticipates that he will not be alone forever. The righteous shall compass me about. The Lord shall deliver me. That's his prayer. Lord, I'm all alone. I'm in trouble. I need your help. And David prays that God would send him somebody to help him. Our text is the answer to that prayer. David escaped to the cave of Dullam, says the text, and when his brethren and his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. The lonely man now has some company. Notice the next verse. And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. The lonely man now has a makeshift militia. If you'll look at the next chapter, 1 Samuel 23, verse 13, it says that the 400 grew to 600. Then David and his men, which were about 600, arose and departed out of Keilah. So every day, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, every day, one by one, David's numbers grew. The people came, about 400. Now that's not many. That's just a small band. But I dare say that it was an encouragement to David as the people gathered to him. Now I want you to look at this motley band that gathered to David in the cave of Adullam. And the first thing I want you to notice is this was a spontaneous, an impromptu, an unsolicited gathering. David did not send out a text message and say, I need some help over here. I'm in the cave of Adullam. He didn't contact his mom and dad. He didn't solicit any help. I suggest that the amazing events that are described in our text can be attributed to nothing short of divine providence. It was the Holy Spirit who moved in the hearts of these people and prompted them to come to David. After all, we just read where he prayed that God would help him. And the fact that help was forthcoming, that people began two and two here, four and five over yonder, to come out of the city and to ally themselves to him in the cave of Dullam is an answer to prayer. 
The Puritan John Flavel wrote a classic on the 57th Psalm that we read just a minute ago titled The Mystery of Providence. And I do think that that is exactly what we see on this occasion. It is providence that is mysteriously at work. And you know, the providence of God is a mystery. William Cowper said it like this, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. You can't trace somebody who's walking in the water. You know, you put your foot in the water and the water is displaced, but as soon as your foot is taken up, there's no trace that you were ever there. The water fills it in. It's not like walking in the mud or even in the sand where you can see the footprints for a little while afterwards. God plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. He moves in mysterious ways. His providence is a reality in your life and mine. I don't know where I'd be today without the providence of God. I've tried to plan and, you know, order my life methodically through the years. But I have to tell you, behind all of my decisions, God has stood in the shadows. And he has overruled and he has been involved. And he has guided and led and helped me. I love the words of the wise man in the book of Proverbs. He says, man chooses his own way, but his goings thereof are of the Lord. Aren't you glad to know that God guides our footsteps, that he leadeth me? Isn't that wonderful to know that God has been leading you and that he has been working in your life? He's been mindful of us even when we were unmindful of him. It's a great comfort to me to think of the sovereignty of God, to trust a God who knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation, who knows every step that I take. And who sees and who guides and overrules. He blesses us in spite of ourselves. My life is a testimony to the faithful providence of the God of heaven. Indeed, how comforting is this spontaneous, unsolicited gathering. David is there in trouble and suddenly people begin to come to ally themselves to him. God is at work. I want you to notice, secondly, it's a voluntary gathering. It's not like these 400 men together with his mother and his father and his father's house it's not like they have been drafted you know in the draft when a nation installs the draft it's law when you get your draft notice you have to show up or you're a lawbreaker it's not like these 400 men that come to ally themselves to David are compelled to enlist with him by law no my friends they make a willing choice to come to David. Now hold that thought in mind. We'll come back to it in just a moment. And then I want you to notice the motives of these 400. Perhaps you ask today what could possibly have motivated this ragtag group of makeshift soldiers to leave the security and the familiarity of life in Saul's kingdom. I mean, they had their houses, they had their jobs, they had their responsibilities. You know, what could compel them to make this transition to leave it all to ally themselves to this unpopular outlaw named David why would they risk it and I suggest there are four motives in the text and we could summarize them all in d words first devotion verse one when his brethren and his father's house heard it they went down thither to him what a blessing is family you know, family is the group of people that says when everybody else in the world turns against you, we won't. 
in marriage when a man and a woman pledge allegiance to one another until death do us part. What they're saying is, I can't promise you fame, fortune, or fair winds, but I promise you that I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will be with you. Whether you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. I'll be on your team. I'll be on your side. I'll be loyal to you. What a wonderful thing it is, my friends, to have family. And David's brothers and his mother and his dad came down to him. That's Jesse and Mrs. Jesse. Remember, David was the youngest son of Jesse. His mother and his father and his father's house and his brethren came down to him, and I suggest they came down to him in the cave of Dullam when they heard that he was there because they loved him. And they wanted to be with him, and they wanted him to know he was not alone in this world. I understand Jesse's motivation, don't you? You know, I prayed two things for my children through the years. Lord, keep them from immorality. Keep them from falling into sin and wrecking their lives and hurting other people because of sin. And number two, Lord, keep them from despair. Help them never to think that they're all alone in this world. Even if they've done wrong, even if they've gone down a sinful path, Lord, help them to know that I'll always love them, that they have somebody who is there to hold their hand, to help them through it. My friends, what a blessing it is to have the loyal love of family. Interestingly, David's mom and dad are elderly at this point. I don't know exactly how old they are. Again, he's the youngest of Jesse's seven or eight sons. And to have that many kids means that you probably are on up in years. Jesse's probably retired at this point. David, on this occasion, is on the run from King Saul. But his father and his mother, even though they're aged They come out and say, we want to join forces with you. But David, I love verse 3 of our text, 1 Samuel 22, 3. David went down to the king of Moab, and he said, Let my father and mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. Isn't it interesting that David makes provision for his aged father and mother? He says, the cave is no place for my mom and dad. We're out here living like fugitives. We don't know where our next meal is coming from. It's a dangerous kind of setup. Our lives are in jeopardy. Mom and dad, I want to make provision for you. So he goes to the king of Moab. Now remember, David's great-grandmother had come from Moab. Ruth, the Moabitess. You read the book of Ruth, and it says that she was David's great-grandmother, Jesse's grandmother, David's dad. And so David might have mentioned that to the king of Moab. You know, my great-grandmother was a Moabite. And would you take care of my mom and dad? while we're out here on the run, and he took them in and cared for them. He made provision. You know, I think of another one, the son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, who on the cross made provision for his mother. As he saw John the disciple, and he said, Woman, behold thy son. And he said, Son, behold thy mother. Now, John wasn't Mary's son, but yet the Lord Jesus says, You will be her adopted son now. You're going to be responsible for taking care of her. Isn't it wonderful that our Lord cares enough about his people to provide not only for their spiritual needs, but even for the ongoing physical needs of his people? What a great example that is to us today. But you know, it's not just his natural kindred. It's not just his kinfolks who gather themselves to him. They gathered themselves, no doubt, because of filial or family love and affection. I suggest there was within the hearts of many in Israel a kind of admiration 
and affection for David, indeed a love for David. If you look back at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 16, after his victory over Goliath, it says, All Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. I mean, David was beloved in the hearts of the nation. They all loved David. He was a winsome young man. He was a courageous young man. He was an impressive young man. And he had won the affection of the nation. And even though the propaganda was such that many minds were being poisoned against him, yet in their hearts, many of these people still loved him. And I suggest that one of the reasons they came to David was because of their love and devotion. Secondly, the text says everyone that was in distress. Here's the second D word, distress. Interestingly, that word distress speaks of difficult and stressful circumstances. I wonder if any of you have ever had any of those. Stress, is that anything you know something about? <laughs> stress, everyone that was going through difficult and stressful circumstances. The word means pressure and burdens and afflictions. You know, it's impossible to go through this life without having stresses, burdens, pressures and afflictions there's not a one of us here who's exempt from it trouble is inevitable jesus said in the world you shall have tribulation these people said our troubles are so heavy we're coming to david then it says and everyone that was in debt i love the repetition of these d words everyone that was in distress everyone that was in debt now the fact is saul had implemented economic programs that involved the imposition of heavy taxes on the public. And the average Israelite had incurred great indebtedness. This heavy taxation that Saul had imposed on the people resulted in widespread indebtedness in the nation. And they had no prospect of relief. And they said, we're going to leave it all behind and go join ourselves to David. And then it says everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented. Discontent is a dissatisfaction with circumstances. These people were dissatisfied with life under Saul's leadership. They didn't have any rest, any peace, as they groaned beneath the heavy burdens of his policies. And therefore, there was a growing disillusionment, a sense of despair that settled in, a dark cloud of discontent that hung over the people. Driven by their extremity and their deep sense of need, these 400 misfits gathered themselves to David in the cave of Adullam. And I want you now to consider with me for a moment that it is for precisely the same reasons that misfits and outcasts today gather themselves steadily to the, our David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've done so for the past 2,000 years. Why do people come to Jesus? Why do misfits and outcasts fly to the cross? Why do they come to Christ? They do so first because of distress. Because of the burdens and the stresses and the afflictions and pressures of life, which have proved too heavy to bear on our own. In fact, Jesus invited his burdened children in Matthew eleven twenty eight by saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you shall find rest for your souls." I want to say more gracious words have never fallen from the lips of any man 
then fell from the lips of Jesus in this passage of Scripture, Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I wonder if my message today finds any burdened soul who feels to be pressed down beneath the load of life's troubles and afflictions, and you say, Brother Mike, I don't know where to turn. Then come to your David. Join yourselves to him, this unpopular figure in the cave of Dullam. You say, well, he's unpopular. Other people won't understand. It doesn't matter what the public thinks, my friends. The issue is, do you feel distress in your own soul? Are you looking for help? Are you looking for one who can bear your burdens? Are you looking for a friend? I'm telling you about one today who says, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Now, of course, this, as you know, is not an invitation to the unregenerate man to come get eternal life. For the unregenerate are dead in trespasses and in sins. And those who are deceased feel no burdens. You can drive a cartload of some kind of heavy burden on top of the deceased, on top of their place of interment. You can drive it across the top and they'll never feel the pressure. But you know, it's only those who are alive who feel the burdens. And it's only the little child of grace who's been quickened and born again, whoever feels the pressures and the burdens in his soul that can be resolved only by the Lord Jesus, his David. The hymn writer no doubt had this in mind, this thought, when he said in the hymn that we sing sometimes, hymn number 529 in our hymnal, hear the blessed Savior calling the oppressed, O ye heavy laden, come to me and rest. Come, no longer tarry, I your load will bear. Bring me every burden and bring me every care. That's his word to you and me today. Are you disappointed? Wandering here and there, dragging chains of doubt and loaded down with care? Do unholy feelings struggle in your breast? Then bring your case to Jesus and he will give you rest. Have you cares of business? Does this apply to anybody here today? Cares of pressing debt? Are you distressed, my friends? Cares of social life or cares of hope unmet? Are you by remorse or sense of guilt depressed? Then come right on to Jesus and he will give you rest. Have you by temptation often conquered been? Does that fit your experience this morning? Has a sense of weakness brought distress within? Christ will sanctify you if you'll claim his best. In the Holy Spirit, he will give you rest. He says, come unto me. Come unto me. Not only do the misfits and outcasts of this world gather themselves to our David today because they feel the stresses and pressures of life are too heavy for them, I suggest it's because of indebtedness. Just like David's original ragtag army felt pressured under the heavy taxation of Saul's kingdom, I suggest, my beloved, that when the Holy Spirit convicts the little child of grace of his sin, he begins to feel that he has a debt that he cannot pay. Interestingly, sin is compared in the Bible to several D words as well. It's compared to a disease. We're sick from the crown of the head to the sole of the feet, says the prophet Isaiah. It's a disease like leprosy. It's compared to a departure. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what the word transgress means. It means to miss the mark. It's compared to a debt. Jesus spoke of those who are 10,000 talents in debt without a farthing to pay. That is, you owe several million dollars and you don't have a penny in your pocket. I'm telling you, my beloved, that's your condition and that's mine by nature. 
It's a fact that in and of ourselves we have nothing to offer. We have nothing wherewith to even begin to make payment for our sins and transgressions. I couldn't make a deposit. I couldn't make a down payment. I couldn't even make the first installment, and you couldn't either. I'm telling you this morning, dear friends, that you and I are bankrupt sinners. He is the great creditor, and we owe him a great debt of sin. Romans 7, 14, speaking of sin, Paul says, We know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Like a slave that had to be sold into debtor's prison, the apostle says that by nature, I'm sold under sin. You say, who sold you, Paul? Adam did. Adam sold us all down the river when he violated the law as the representative of the human family. God said, you may eat of every tree except for one. And Adam disobeyed God and breached that boundary. And I dare say as a result of that, my beloved, we're sold into the bondage of corruption. We're sold as prisoners in the pit wherein is no water. We're sold under sin. Not only did Adam sell us, we sold ourselves. You know, we're sinners by nature because of Adam, but we're also sinners by practice. In Isaiah chapter 52, in verse number 3, says, You have sold yourselves for naught. Indeed, we've sold ourselves for nothing. Now, that's not a good business deal no matter how you slice it. We gave away everything and got nothing back in return. It sounds like paying taxes to the... Well, I won't go there this morning. But we've sold ourselves for naught, but you shall be redeemed without money. What a wonderful thought is the last half of Isaiah 52.3. You know, when the Holy Spirit convicts a person of their sins, and it is the Holy Spirit who has to do that. I can't do it. I could tell you you're a sinner all day long, but you'll never feel it. You'll only get mad at me. But when the Holy Spirit points the long accusing finger at you and says, Thou art the man, and you feel the mallet in your hand that it was because of my sins that Jesus was crucified. And you are made to cry out, O wretched man that I am. You know, it's easy to see other people's misgivings and faults and failures. But then when the Holy Spirit lays you low in the dust and strips you of self-righteousness, then you see yourself as you truly are. And it makes a little child of grace to cry out and say, Is there any hope for me? The heavy debt that we're under is like a smothering burden. I've been in debt before. I've owed money. I don't care to tell you how much I've owed. <laughs> but it was enough to where I felt like I could never, I didn't have any hope of ever getting it paid off. And perhaps you've been there. To be in debt, my friends, is like standing on your tiptoes in a pond in a lake in which the water is up to your top lip and it's lapping over your nose and you just can barely get a breath. You know, you feel like you're drowning. You feel like you're smothering. It's like being in a closed-in place in which the oxygen is being depleted and you feel that there's no hope for your future to be in debt. And I'm telling you, that's exactly the condition that we're in by nature. We're in debt to sin. But there's only one person who can help you with that, and it's your David. And though he's a lonely and unpopular figure, and he's an outcast from the elite culture, that is, he's on the run, he's out there, and somebody says, you're not to fraternize with him. I'm telling you, if the Holy Spirit's ever taught you your need then he's the only one who can help you. She said, that's what I'm trying to say today. Faith is born from a sense of need. The hymn writer put it like this, all the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. And I would ask you today, my beloved, do you feel your need of Jesus? I can't make you feel that. But if the Holy Spirit has shown you your condition and shown you that you're done for, if not for an alien righteousness, 
grace outside of yourself, somebody else having mercy upon you. My beloved, then if you've been brought to see your need of him, then come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded and sick and sore. Jesus has already saved you by his pity, love and power. And in coming to him, you will find rest for yourselves. Everyone that was in distress with the burdens and pressures of life, everyone that is in debt and realizes his sin debt, which he cannot pay himself. And it says, and everyone who is discontented, And I want to ask you today, my friend, are you discontented with this world? This world can never satisfy the deep needs of the soul. There's in the heart of every child of grace a God-shaped vacuum that nothing can possibly fill except for God himself. And I'm telling you, dear friends, if you've tried to find fulfillment and peace and joy in this world, you realize that it's all empty and vain. It doesn't seem to satisfy All of the entertainment, you say, I love to go to the shows, I love to go to these concerts, and all of that's well and good, but I'll tell you, there's a need in the heart of the little child of grace that the world can never fill. You say, well, Brother Mike, I'm trying to fill the emptiness in my soul at the liquor cabinet, or through the pill bottle, or through diversions, or through vacations, or through other people. Oh, my friends, only God can satisfy the needs in the hearts of his little children. So if you're discontented with this world, if you've been brought to the point that you're thirsty and nothing can possibly assuage that thirst or satisfy your needs and desires, Jesus says in John 7, 37, come, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And out of his belly shall go rivers of living water. Indeed, my friends, there will be an outflow Your life will turn into a blessing to others. If you once find refreshment in Christ, he can satisfy you like nothing else can. I love the hymn by William Cowper that says, Oh, for a closer walk with God. That's what he longed for, a calm and heavenly frame, a pure light to mark the road that leads me to the Lamb. What peaceful hours I once enjoyed. How sweet their memory still. But he says, but they have left an aching void that this world, can never fill. This world cannot satisfy. And then not only do people come to our David because they feel the pressures and stresses of life and they feel the conviction and the debt of their own sin nature and they realize nothing that they possibly can offer would make the first payment on that sin. And not only have they become discontented with what this world has to offer, but they come because of love. Just as David's family and the others came out of a sincere affection for him, I dare say many come to Jesus Christ in gospel obedience and in their Christian experience because they love him so. The Holy Spirit has shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. And they realize that he has done for me what no one else could have possibly done. And like the woman who came in and began to weep at Jesus' feet, and washed his feet, her tears were so profuse that she washed his feet with her tears and dried them with the hair of her head. Simon the Pharisee was aghast at such a display, an emotional display, said it's not appropriate, but Jesus knew what he was thinking. And he said, Simon, do you know why this woman loves me so much? It's because she's been forgiven so much. My friends, if you've been forgiven a great deal in your life, it ought to stimulate and kindle great love for the Savior. And that's reason to come to Him, to ally yourself to Him, 
even though the world says he's an outcast and he's not popular and only the ignorant go to him, yet you have found that you have needs that only he can supply. And therefore, like Paul said, I've given up my pedigree, though I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And as touching the law, I was blameless. You know, Paul was in line to be a uh, probably a very influential figure in Jewish culture. He's probably a member of the Sanhedrin. He was an up-and-coming up star politically in Judea. But Paul says, I gave it all up in Philippians chapter 3, and he gave it all up for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord, for whom he suffered the loss of all things, he said, and I do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is by faith in G of Jesus Christ. You know, the hymn writer picks up on that passage in hymn number 232 in our hymnal. No more, my God, I boast no more of all the duties I've done. And he says, now for the love I bear his name. What was my gain? I count my loss. My former pride, I call my shame, and I nail my glory to his cross. Indeed, my friends, love, devotion, is a reason to come to, our, to your David. Now, you say, Brother Mike, I would come to him, but the church is comprised of such an unspectacular group. I mean, you look at these group, these people, they're misfits, they're ignorant, they're, they're unlearned. They're people who are not reputable and powerful and popular. You say, I want to be with the popular crowd. Well, you know what the popular crowd will do today. They will applaud you, and tomorrow they'll stick you in the back if they have half of an opportunity. I want to say the people who ally themselves to our David are indeed an unspectacular group. It's a motley band. It's a group of misfits and social outcasts that the world really rejects. But you know, my beloved they're the people who are blessed by God. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty and base things, the things which are, uh, which are uh, the base things, the things which are uh, honorable. He says, God has chosen the things that are not, that is considered to be nothing, to bring to naught. The things that are, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The people of God have characteristically been from the poorer classes of society. But you know, they're sincere. They're common people. But they're people who've been brought to see their need. And they know that only Jesus, regardless of what people say about it, can meet that need. So therefore, I'll leave Saul's kingdom. I'll leave the world. And I'll go to Jesus. And I'll say, Lord Jesus, thou art my hope. Forgive my sins. And you know when we do that, blessed are the poor in spirit. The promise is they, theirs is the kingdom of God. And it says they came to David and he became a captain over them. They voluntarily enlisted under his command. You say, well, what kind of an army is this going to be? Well, my friends, it really is an impressive army, army because before you know it, they're showing themselves by great exploits in David's service. The 600, there's a group of 30 that are especially mentionable, that are, that are honorable, 
And then there's a group of three, three of David's mighty men. And you can read about some of their exploits in 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 through the end of the chapter. David's mighty men. Some of these soldiers who allied themselves to David demonstrated uncommon loyalty and devotion to him. And they did spectacular things because they were a part of a program of something that was more important to them than Saul's political popularity in his kingdom. Like them, my friends, you and I must first come to the end of ourselves, sick of our sin and tired of this world, before we will be driven by our deep need to our David. We must be willing to be contemptible in the eyes of the world. As Hebrews 13, 13 says, let us go forth unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach, because that is a greater honor to ally yourself to this unpopular Savior than to be applauded with the accolades of men. And simply we must go to him simply because we have nowhere else to go. As Jesus asked his disciples, wouldest thou also go away? And Peter answered for the group and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. There's one place for the misfit, the outcast, and it's not the island of misfit Christians. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, go to your David. You say, well, Brother Mike, I want the world to like me. But if you've been brought to see that only Jesus, only David's greater son, can meet your needs, I dare say there's one place for you. So gather yourself to your David, your shepherd king today, who will be your shepherd the rest of your life. Follow him in gospel baptism. Unite with the church. Find a home with those other outcasts and misfits who say that I love him and will fight his battles under his command because what a great honor it is to be enlisted in his service. That, my friends, is the gospel invitation to God's little children today. Hear the blessed Savior calling me, O oh 